Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. And this is Episode 16, Agricultural Revolution, The Dutch and Trade. Wow, did I really say I would address the problem of evil last week? That's what you said. Hey, everybody. I want you to meet Attila the Bun, first-time guest on the program an expert in technical stuff in the fields of ravaging and pillaging bakery products and pastries. And uh, a really great-hearted guy. Um, Yeah, I I must have been feeling pretty full of myself seven weeks ago when I wrote that. I mean, my writing is steadily seven weeks ahead of the podcast episodes. Well, when it comes to evil, maybe I can circle around it for a while over the next several episodes and see how close we get. Um, I was actually thinking we would spend some time on charity and kindness, for one thing. That was unique, utterly, shockingly unique in England. Two, look at the differences in rural life between England and the continent, what with the withering away of serfdom and all. It won't surprise you to learn that ending serfdom doesn't fix the problems of low agricultural productivity. And when you hit Malthusian limits, it's still hard. That's why we call them hard limits, but in a different way, without serfdom. And third, we need details on the Reformation. What made it so electrifying? What were people thinking? And also, what happened in a normal history kind of way? I'm going to be slow to get to that part. I'm going to give you a lot of tools to help you think about things and sort them out, because they're quite complicated. Evil is a big problem, though. Can't ignore it. Let me try and distract you by talking about charity and kindness. This is another way England was so weird. How weird was it? That's a terrible joke. But it's my only line. Oh, Monty Python, that's all right then. England was so weird that they had a functioning welfare state in Tudor England and maybe even before. That's not possible. People were just too poor. There were massive periodic famines, the walking dead moving from town to town. Even though technology improved and the heavy soils of northern Europe were able to be productive, you still had the worsening climate and falling grain yields to deal with. There was meat, more in the United Provinces and Britain than other places, and fish in Scandinavia. But Scandinavia left our story. Although 17th century Sweden is fascinating, I'd like to cover it, maybe next season, or it can be an example of something this season. They did have a similar sense of their own superiority, the way that the English were thinking of themselves as God's chosen people, as we talked about in the last episode. Hmm. Swedes haven't changed. Meat. Meat isn't enough. Every farm tried to produce enough grain to feed themselves, period. They weren't confident enough to rely on a market. They wanted to be self-sufficient. It was an idea in their very bones. That's true, but it was starting to change, and it would change. First, in the United Provinces, because of the mother trade. That was not an incidental discussion we had. Applied technology, with the miracle, a lot of smarts, and good luck, and the Dutch broke the problems of low agricultural productivity and escaped the Malthusian trap forever. No. Uh, World War II brought it back for a while, until America could get them out again. 
It wasn't just the mother trade. That wasn't enough. No, but I think it broke the back of the cycle. Once the Dutch could import a large quantity of grain reliably, commercial life could accelerate. A whole psychic change, a change in attitudes, could begin. As early as 1514, 38% of Dutch employment was in industry. This was more than double the percentage in France, Germany, and Italy. Only 25% was in agriculture, less than half the main continental economies. Those are the two big numbers to focus on. Twice as much in industry, half as much in agriculture. If you're an ordinary person, the chance that you'd be in industry is twice as high in the United Provinces. And the chance that you'd be a farm laborer was only half as much in the United Provinces. Guess which one of those pays reasonably. Then, just to get us to 100%, there was another 15% in other kinds of primary production like fishing and peat digging. And the remaining 22% was in services, mainly trade and transport. The rhythm of agricultural economies is cyclical, devoted to maintaining continuity from year to year. Actions, behaviors, social constructions go along with that. Industrial societies are more linear and cumulative, concerned with growth. There may be consequences if an addiction to growth occurs, but it changed forever an older way of life. And we've been talking about grain-based economies as early as episode two. It was kind of a devil's bargain. We called it a grain trap earlier. You get more people, but smaller, half-starved people on the edge of disaster. Whenever there was bad weather, sometimes war and disease interferes with harvest or planting, and there can be blights. Seed grain can be stolen, spoiled by mold, or, or eaten by vermin. When you think of the human suffering involved, when later we get into the hard life people had in early factories, their hardships are actually going to look pretty good compared to life in a grain-based society on the edge of starvation for generations at a time. It's a difficult thing for us to grasp, but we have escaped the trap. We're, we've been freed from a horrible prison. Someone had to escape first to develop the technologies that allowed everyone else to join the prison break. That was the Dutch. If you research yourself, you're going to find a lot of information on heavy soil farming, horse collars, heavy plows, improvements in veterinary care. These things were not the answer, though they might have been indispensable too. They allowed the agricultural population in England to be larger, and this was important, valuable, but in another sense, it just made the prison bigger. It's a bit like the fact that rice has a higher yield than wheat and other grains. And this allowed the population in China and Japan, for example, to be much higher than anywhere else. But it was still a prison. Suffering, just around the corner, bad years always came. We will get to how the Dutch improved land productivity dramatically, something England was well positioned to copy given all the refugees fleeing to England from the Spanish War, as we've been talking about and the deliberate copying of Dutch methods whenever possible, and the enormous amount of regular trade, especially the wool trade. But first, uh, and I hesitate to do this because I think a lot of people understand trade pretty well, but I think we need to visit the wizard. If you already know all about comparative advantage, futures markets, and Pareto improvement, you can skip ahead about uh, eight and a half minutes. Okay. 
Imagine you live in a world with no international trade. It's just gone, just a memory, it's over, can't happen. We have the same technology as today, but maybe, I don't know, there's a divinity or an alien. Maybe it's Hera in a snit still punishing us as descendants of Hercules, Heracles. You can, you can have German cars, but you have to make them in local factories, so they aren't actually German. But somehow they aren't just as good as the real thing. You can make Samsung TVs, but they are so expensive to produce and don't work as well. So this wizard comes along in San Diego and sets up shop. And I, I thank David Friedman for this idea. And let's all be American for this thought experiment, just to make it easier. Yeah, you may be interested to know that Americans are about 50% of the podcast audience at the moment. So the wizard can magic over an Audi for you. He can magic over a 60-inch TV for you. In fact, anything that anyone in the world can make. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. He's like Thanos. All must be in balance. You have to give the wizard something someone else wants in exchange for what you want. It's not necessarily what the people over in the Samsung factory want, just someone, anyone. And it has to have equivalent magical value. That's the magical balance. Your trade account, your current account, your capital accounts have to balance, just like today. So what do people do? Well, I mean, maybe you have a farm and you grow soybeans. You sell them to a dealer who ships them to the wizard. The wizard gives back some French wine, a few Honda sedans, and some flat-screen TVs. The dealer sells them to retailers of these things, and you can go buy whatever you like from them. The wizard produces a magical chart of magical values, which you can study, and it seems to you that you can get more stuff from the wizard if you grow a corn crop this year. Hmm. So that's what you do. It's risky because it takes months to grow the corn crop, and maybe by the time the corn ripens the magical value of corn will be less than of soybeans. You can't tell. And if you're wrong, it's a disaster for you personally. So years go by and you have the insight of what farmers like you really need is a way to sell their crop before they plant it, to take the risk out of the decision of what to plant this year. So you establish an exchange to do that. People can buy and sell future crops at fixed prices, the risk of changing magical values hasn't gone away, but the person who's bought that risk has chosen to take the risk and is presumably happy to do so. So now we have Pareto improvement in the context of the futures market. You have a minimally riskless system of comparative advantage going too. You can plant whatever you can best produce, given how productive your farm is and what the inputs are against the magical value that you can give the wizard in exchange for the good things you want. This is the world of comparative advantage. Everyone focuses on what they do best, and the wizard gives them the most that they can possibly get. This is an awesome wizard. The people at Samsung can devote all their efforts to making better, cheaper TVs, and not worry that they'll starve because the wizard is sending over your farm products. And you can focus on your farming, being the best you can be at it without needing to think about how to make a nice TV. This is an awesome wizard. And maybe I hear you screaming, What? Wait, what about me? I can't grow soybeans better than anyone. 
or make cars or computers or anything. I, uh, I can't be the best in the world at something. I can't be the best at anything. Just tell them about the lawyer-secretary paradox. Oh, right. It's an old-fashioned sounding idea, but it still applies, I guess. I mean, obviously it applies. You don't need to be the absolute best at anything to get the most possible from the wizard. You just have to be barely good enough to be worth hiring. This is fully encompassed in comparative advantage. I'll cover this fast, but you can follow along on scratch paper, a whiteboard, or a spreadsheet program. As long as there's a market economy at the end of this to handle the coordination problems, this works. So, here's an example. Say you have a lawyer who works 10 hours a day. Remember, this is America for this example, not Norway. And can earn, for the sake of round numbers, $1,000 an hour for lawyer work. But he can only do lawyer work for 8 hours a day because 2 hours are filled with administrative work. So, he can earn $8,000 a day in a 10-hour day. Someone comes along and offers to do the admin work for the lawyer, but the lawyer is super smart and can do the admin work twice as well and twice as fast as anyone who applies. He's the best. I mean, maybe he really isn't, but the Dunning-Kruger effect is real. Anyway, the admin person can make a case that he could take over the admin work so the lawyer can do law 10 hours a day, then the lawyer can make $10,000 a day. So as long as the admin person costs less than $2,000 a day, or $250 an hour, because the admin person works an 8-hour day, it's smart for the lawyer to hire the admin person. Bang! A new admin job is created, even though the admin person is not the best at it. So you can see how you can fit into this sort of world. But now that the wizard is bringing Samsung TVs, what happens to your neighbor who manufactures flat-screen televisions, expensively and poorly, but no one will buy her TVs since they are able to get a better deal from Samsung via the wizard? So, your neighbor needs to find another way to spend her time. She can think about what people will locally pay her to do or what other ways there are for getting magical value from the wizard. Maybe she will switch to manufacturing robot farming systems to help out all the farmers on the exchange and everyone will be better off. Or she does some math which tells her she can never find a worthwhile use for her manufacturing plant and she has to close it down. Someone else may come along with a better idea. I mean, the plant is there, they're trained workforce, a local infrastructure of support for the plant already in existence, and buy it and repurpose it the way Elon Musk took over the old General Motors plant in Fremont, near where I grew up. Or maybe because there are 2,000 workers there and 200,000 voters sympathetic to them, they get the government to step in in some way, a tariff. So inexpensive TVs don't exist anymore. Or a subsidy. So they can still make TVs and sell them as cheap as Samsung. And now we have a situation where there is no comparative advantage. That's gone. Some people can't benefit from TVs because they are too expensive, or everyone is paying higher taxes so that your neighbor's plant can operate without changing. This situation is what economists would call inefficient because everyone is not as well off as they could be. But it could be expedient to somehow cushion the loss the people at the TV plant experience to avoid riots or other unrest 
or more typically in a democracy, so that an incumbent doesn't lose an election. The wizard may be awesome, but the wizard can't solve all human problems that come from the need to change and adapt. It should be clear to you that the wizard already exists. We usually refer to the wizard by the term free trade. Paired with the miracle, the wizard has lifted more poor people out of poverty than anything known to our world, thanks to comparative advantage. And if you understand the Garden of Eden story, you will understand that nothing can be perfect. God, I hate that you have to keep bringing religion into this podcast. Religion has most of the best stories. They've been working on it a long time, thinking hard. Consider when Adam and Eve are tossed out of the garden. Why isn't even important. And I mean important for economics here. I'm not trying to diss theology, religion, literature, or philosophy. The important part is the end. By the sweat of your brow shalt thou eat. By the sweat of your brow shalt thou eat. Human beings can't draw sustenance from sunlight. We have to actively expend time and energy to grow food or earn money in an economy of some kind. It's obvious, maybe, but unavoidable. And since we are all doing it all the time and changing and adapting how we do it, as we age, as we find better ways to do things, as we learn new things, as new methods and new technologies are created, we need to coordinate how we will do things. We need to coordinate how we will change. Therefore, we're never in some stable, perfect state, what an economist would call an equilibrium. Though sometimes, yes, life can feel perfect, like when you fall in love. Anyway, so far, we've not found a better way than the price mechanism, a market economy, to solve the great coordination problem. But Tudor England did not generally have free markets yet. In their markets, both prices and quantities were regulated. Monopolies, both traditional and royally chartered, were everywhere. The grain markets, for example, did not have free prices, not legally, and there were limits to how much grain you could save for another year. You weren't free to decide how much to sell either. Historians believe that informal evasion of the rules was rife, but you can't make long-term plans based on breaking laws, and that in turn means you get less investment in agriculture than would be ideal. There will be many steps needed to solve this set of problems, baby steps in about seven or eight episodes from here. The price mechanism, a market economy, will prove to be the great solution to the many otherwise unsolvable coordination problems. Perhaps someday we'll have a friendly AI, artificial intelligence, that won't turn us into paperclips, but will help us instead, and we will have luxury gay space communism, but that's just a dream as long as human brains, bodies, and machines designed by human brains are hard limits. It's still a lot better than pre-miracle times. Well, at least that last sentence is true. Well, I don't want to argue, and I didn't mean to have a whole episode on a basic economics lesson. Charity and kindness next week, then. And we'll be back next week after conversations with Cami. And thanks, Attila. I appreciate you coming on the program. figure it out. <laughs> hey, Cammy, what do you think about episode 16 and the wizard? 
I didn't know the wizard example, and I loved it. And It actually comes from uh, an economist and writer named uh, David Friedman. But it seems to me basic econ is really at the heart of the miracle that happened that one time. Yeah, certainly hard to imagine it happening without a market economy and certainly without... True. <laughs> Your grandfather was a farmer. I thought about that when you before you even started. When the episode began, I pictured in my mind a little bit of growing up and, and visiting my grandfather. He was a farmer, and I thought it was a big deal we'd go and help feed the pigs and the cows and pull the bales of hay sideways in the farm and move sprinklers. But as I've gotten older, I realized his farm was just a really small, more gentleman's farm. It wasn't a major agricultural entity. Yeah, it's relevant to the podcast because I think it was probably a big farm compared to a lot of them that we're going to be talking about. You and I both have this farming experience but I think very few people nowadays do. I know our kids didn't get it. No, they really didn't. I wonder what that means for the future. I think it means their perspective will be a bit different. You did your work on a farm in uh, eastern Washington, right? I work on a farm in Fremont, California. Well, I wouldn't call what I did work. But... Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, I had an actual farmhand type job and got paid less than minimum wage because that's what the particular farmer did for teens. Oh, grandfather had some animals. I said it was more like adventures in summer or Easter break hmm. more than backbreaking work. Well, with animals, it was probably fun, right? Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, once in a while you'd see some something dramatic like a bull that got a big cyst in the side of his face and had to be corralled, and mm. the cyst had to be cut open, and most of those little cows had, the cattle had great big brown eyes, and the calves were really cute, and, you know, once in a oh. while they got out, and you had to round them up, and, and to a kid, teen, young teen, that was a lot of fun. The way the economy worked, it requires about 2% of the population to be engaged in farm work, to feed everyone in the country, and export to feed hundreds of millions more. It's just amazing how productive it all is now. The other part of my family in Ohio, all the kids were in 4-H and raised animals, sold them, and often they went for slaughter, and the kids knew that. But sometimes I think that the closest our kids have gotten is the big feedlot on I-5, where it's huge. It's Agriculture has become one of the big business things mm -hmm. most of the time, rather than the small farm like my grandfather had. Yeah. seems like the smaller farms in the times you're talking about, say, Tudor England, would have been more like the farm of my grandfather's with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Absolutely. But now many farms, for economic reasons, are of a specialty. The big feedlots with lots and lots and lots of cows or the huge grain grower. Yeah, or just enormous fields. Just... Right incomprehensible to the people of the early modern era. And most of our suburban kids don't have the opportunity to experience those things. Yeah, true enough. All right. Thanks, Cammie. Oh, yeah. And please go on to Spotify or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a positive review. 
It really helps the podcast when you do that. I really notice it and appreciate it. Thank you.